This podcast contains graphic or mature material. Depictions of murder and sexual assault are discussed in detail during this podcast and may be triggering to some. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, Cold Case fans. We are the Cold Case Crew, a group of friends who have decided to take a look at some of the oldest cold cases from the Mountain State in hopes of bringing new life and hope of resolution to a decades-old story that has been silenced by time. My name is Whitney. It's Ashley. And I'm Beth. We encourage any of our listeners, if you haven't already, to follow us on Facebook at Cold Case Crew 00 and share our posts pertaining to these cases. You never know if you or someone you know holds the one piece of information missing that could provide resolution for many of these cases. Tonight we will be heading up to Wheeling, West Virginia in the northern panhandle of the state, which sits in Ohio County. Wheeling is situated in close proximity to both Pennsylvania and Ohio state borders, which is about a 15-minute drive over to Pennsylvania and only 10 minutes over to Ohio, which... Personally, I found extremely interesting considering that one would not have far to travel before crossing state lines. In theory, one could be states away before authorities even knew to look for somebody. We will be getting into the topography of Wheeling, and in particular, this crime scene, more as we continue on our story, but it will play a key role in navigating the investigation of this crime. The year was 1977, and the victim, a 26-year-old postulant nun named Roberta Elam, For those of you who are not aware, postulant is a term used by the Catholic Church to describe one who has not yet taken their oath and is also known as a pre-novitiate candidate. I will say that the manner in which our victim met her fate is extremely unsettling and tragic, so again, listener discretion is advised. So without any further exposition, ladies, are you ready to dive in? Yes, let's go. Roberta Ann Elam was born August 23, 1950 in St. Paul, Minnesota, the oldest of four children, two boys and two girls, born to Robert and Mary Elam. Roberta was the leader of the pack, so to speak, and much like her role in relation to her family, Roberta took leadership in almost everything she did, whether it be sports, social movements, or religion. Growing up, her father Robert worked for ITT and moved the family from Minnesota to Illinois before settling in Allendale, New Jersey. Roberta is remembered for her gregarious personality. She loved to laugh, write poetry, and enjoyed outdoor activities such as hiking and jogging. She even played on the basketball team in high school. Following high school, Roberta attended Maryland College, where she obtained her bachelor's in arts and theology. She graduated graduate school at Fordham University in New York, where she obtained her master's degree in theology. Following her departure from university in 1975, she moved back in with her parents in New Jersey for a brief stint of time. Roberta was a force to be reckoned with and was extremely outspoken with regards to matters of social justice, especially the equality of women. This was a plight in which she felt passionately about. Her brother has even stated that Roberta had expressed that she believed that it was absolutely ludicrous that a woman could not be a priest if they wanted to be. But if you thought you were going to stereotype Roberta as your typical nun, you would be amused to know that prior to her time spent with the Catholic Church, she drove an orange convertible Fiat sports car and behaved much like any other young adolescent, even dating boys. In August 1976, Roberta came to West Virginia, where she initially began her work with the Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston, by traveling the state and conducting religious education classes, though her title was officially listed as Adult Education Coordinator. Participants of these classes remember her fondly, many of which have been interviewed in light of her death to praise the work she did and her generous nature. She truly did make friends wherever she went and was admired by all those who came in contact with her. Not many can say that in such a short lifetime, so I feel it truly speaks to who Roberta was in life. One article in particular, which ran in the Beckley Post-Herald shortly after the murder, quoted one individual, 
I knew her as a beautiful human being, giving unselfishly of herself in service of God. That's nice. It is at this time in her work with the diocese that Roberta Elam became known as Sister Robin. Taking on a new name in many religions is common practice, like a rite of passage that signifies a shift in one's relationship with God. Many Catholics, in particular, chose to follow this practice. In June of 1977, just weeks before her untimely death, Roberta moved into the mother house at the Mount St. Joseph's convent, where she had started an eight-day silent retreat of prayer and contemplation. Though many have stated that Sister Robin was steadfast in her faith, there have been some questions raised regarding Roberta's commitment to becoming a nun, and some say she was heavily contemplating her decision. One fellow sister in the convent recalls Roberta asking, What would you think if I left? For argument's sake, I do want to state that this sort of questioning is normal. The act of completely dedicating yourself to a life of poverty in the name of God is a huge commitment, and for any person to have absolutely no doubts or periods of questioning would be almost unheard of. On the morning of Monday, June 13, 1977, Roberta awoke per usual and went on her daily morning jog. Like many postulant nuns on this retreat, she met briefly with her director or spiritual advisor, Peggy Pairing, who was to be a listening presence for Robin during this time in her spiritual journey. Around 10.30 a.m., Roberta left the mother house and walked to a nearby field that overlooked the Spiegel Golf Course near Ogilvy Park, some 75 yards away. Here, she intended to pray and reflect on her upcoming vows. On her way out of the mother house, she stopped by the kitchen to grab an apple, made the trek up the hill, and situated herself on a bench, her prayer book resting on her lap to begin her repose. It's safe to say that the events that followed took Roberta by surprise as she sat praying, unassuming of any imminent danger approaching. No, she was just going to pray. And eat her apple. Eat her apple. Around 1.50 p.m., a groundskeeper discovered the partially clad body of Roberta Elam laying on a hillside near where she was known to have been praying. Strangely, the clothing found among the body were street clothes, something that a nun wouldn't typically wear. Her blue jeans and underwear had been pulled down, her blouse and bra pulled up, It was also believed that the clothing had been removed and or altered from its original state. The bench that Roberta had been known to be praying by had been overturned and her prayer book and handbag were discovered nearby. The Ohio County Sheriff's Department arrived on scene and took the body to a nearby Wheeling Hospital to await autopsy. Initially, it was believed that the nun had been attacked from behind and drugged from the bench to a more concealed location, some 30 to 50 yards away. This was evidenced not only by the location of the body upon discovery, but also by a notable disturbance in the grass near the tree line. Bloodhounds were called to the scene in an attempt to aid in the recovery of any potential vital evidence, but sadly, no results were yielded. In fact, the scene itself was void of any evidence at all, aside from Roberta's body, her few possessions, and the overturned metal bench. There is something very interesting about the landscape of this property and the crime scene in general. But let's backtrack to explaining that the mother house to the Sisters of St. Joseph is located off of Pogue Run Road and sits above the Ogilvy Golf Course. There are no written or fenced boundaries between the church property and the golf course. However, there is a line of trees on the property that is known as the dividing marker of the two properties. It's also important to note that you can gain entry to Ogilvy by traveling Pogue Run Road as well and turning onto Ogilvy Drive. At this time in 1977, Pogue Run Road was known as a lover's lane with many desolate areas which would allow cars to park. It's also important to note that although Ogilvy is now a resort with a park and a zoo, in 1977 it consisted of the golf course and not much else. The specific spot where Sister Robin was praying that morning was commonly used by the sisters. 
It was known to be peaceful and quiet, and several of the other sisters mentioned after the fact that they had contemplated going up to the same spot to pray on the day Sister Robin was murdered. Obviously, this is before they knew what happened. As far as the landscape of the area in which Roberta was discovered, the grade in which the hill slopes is very high. In other words, the location where Sister Robin sat praying in repose on that middle bench is almost completely concealed from all 360 degrees, where it sat only 75 yards away from unassuming golfers, which seems extremely close. The reality is, due to the landscape, her attack would have been completely concealed from the golfers below. Mm. But was this location chosen out of sheer dumb luck? Or was the offender familiar with the landscape and the area and knew he would be hidden from the eyes of any potential witnesses? Hmm. Makes you wonder. Mm -hmm. Like, is it a golfer or... Is it somebody that works at the... Well, could you imagine golfing and then finding out that someone was being murdered right above you? That'd be awful. Yeah. Or, I mean, how close was it? Like 75 she... yards. So she, they would have heard screaming, you would think. You would think, but... Hadn't she taken her vow of silence? If you're, I'm getting <laughs> murdered, I'm going to scream. <laughs> An autopsy revealed that Roberta had been raped and that a tampon was still present at the time the event occurred. There was also bruising found on the neck, throat, and legs, but no defensive wounds were present. Cause of death was determined to have been manual strangulation. The time of death was estimated to have occurred any time between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. on the same day, Monday, June 13th. Though it was initially believed that Roberta was attacked from behind, the positioning of the bruising around the neck showed that, in actuality, she was more than likely assaulted from the front. But could this indicate that Sister Robin knew her assailant? It certainly did not appear that Robin felt any sense of immediate danger upon the unknown assailant's approach. So she didn't fight back or? I think she was just completely taken off guard. Like somebody was probably approaching. She probably. Back then, did they look under fingernails and stuff like that? Law enforcement were quick to interview the nuns at Mount St. Joseph, as well as countless golfers who were playing the Spiegel Golf Course that morning. Though no persons who had been golfing that morning reported hearing or seeing anything out of the ordinary, several nuns recalled hearing a commotion shortly after Robin's departure. According to reports, a loud noise or voices were heard coming from the direction of the golf course. The voices were described as high-pitched in nature, but the nuns assumed it to simply be coming from the golfers over on the course and shrugged it off. Was this in actuality Sister Robin and her unknown attacker? In the days leading up to the murder, several of Sister Robin's colleagues at the convent recalled an exchange of words between Robin and one particular member of an Atlanta-based salvage crew who had been in town removing cables near the convent. According to their accounts, the worker had been making obscene and inappropriate marks about Sister Robin and some of the other nuns. Robin, being outspoken, exchanged unpleasantries with him in return. The incident had reportedly shaken Robin, as it was known that she had spoken about it with several nuns at the convent following the incident. As far as we know, this person of interest was sought out and cleared by authorities in the weeks that followed. So she wasn't silent. No, she had just started her silent retreat that day. When we say she exchanged unpleasantries, let's wonder what came out of her mouth, though. Probably not cuss words, but something referring something to that. Shoo. Yeah, something blasphemous. Get out of here, Get out of here you loud, mean man. You big meanie. You're being a butthead. <laughs> Another avenue that was explored by authorities came from several tips that were called in regarding an unknown male who was spotted near Ogilby Park around the time of the murder. Witnesses have stated that the man was seen walking on foot from his vehicle on Pogue Run Road towards the embankment below where Sister Robin was known to have been praying. 
According to reports, the male was described as being 5'10 to 6 feet tall with dark complexion. He had a slim build and weighed approximately 160 pounds. He had large eyes and bushy eyebrows that grew across the bridge of his nose. In the morning of the attack, he had a few days worth of beard growth, though he was the kind of person that would probably have a 5 o'clock shadow even when clean-shaven. He was said to have driven a mid to late 1960s Chevrolet Impala, blue or gray in color, that was adorned with several religious bumper stickers on the rear, one of which was said to have been praying hands, another had to do with coal mining. A composite sketch created by Detective Richard Vogelmore was based on these details and publicly distributed on August 31st, 1977, but the mystery man has never been identified. Law enforcement also followed up on the possibility of the crime sharing a link to a series of four rape strangulation murders that occurred in nearby Washington County, Pennsylvania. The locations were notably only 42 minutes apart and in close enough proximity to have been committed by the same offender. However, upon a meeting of the minds between the members of the Ohio County Sheriff's Department and members of law enforcement from Washington County, PA, they determined the crimes to ultimately not be connected, as the modus operandi, although similar, was not the same. The strangulation deaths in Pennsylvania were all committed with articles of clothing, whereas Sister Robin was strangled with a murderer's bare hands. So is that like... You could see the impressions. That's why they think nowadays they could probably print that touch DNA. But I'd say there's nothing left of her to. wonder if they took pictures of it, though. Yeah. They do still have the file on this. Oh, that's good. There is one final person of interest we will take a look at who rose to the forefront of the investigation again in 2019 when Detective Paul Holes, whose television show The DNA of Murder, featured an episode on Sister Robin. John Shoplack was a Wheeling, West Virginia native who was initially brought to the attention of authorities back in 1977. According to accounts given by Shoplack's ex-girlfriend, who had broken up with him prior to Sister Robin's death, he once choked her out. He also had a known hatred of Catholics and had two prior convictions of rape. Likewise, Shoplack had once robbed his grandmother by cutting off her finger in orders to steal a ring, during which time he wrapped a telephone cord around her neck as a means of incapacitating her. A friend of Shoplack's also came forward to authorities after John had admitted to him that he strangled a nun near Ogilvy Park. His account continues, indicating that Shoplack also admitted that he used a belt to strangle her and that the nun was either on the rag or was a virgin because I had blood all over me. Oh, wow. Though it's well known today that Sister Robin had been menstruating at the time of her death, this information had not been released at the time of her death in 1977 and would only have been known by Sister Robin and her assailant. Back in 1977, Shoplack was subsequently cleared of any involvement after his blood type, obtained from military records, failed to provide a match to Sister Robin's assailant. Blood types were the only type of DNA-based evidence that was used back in the 70s, so at this time, they found this to be substantial enough information to clear him. However, given advancements in technology, we have since learned that many of the military records used in the past were flawed and inaccurate, which would not so easily clear Mr. Shoplack today. Mm-hmm. During Hull's investigation, he described Sister Robin's death as a power-based crime and profiled John Shoplack as a power-assertive offender. Though Shoplack died in 2019, authorities are hopeful to obtain a DNA sample in which to compare to the known DNA profile of Sister Robin's killer. As of 2021, they have not yet been successful in obtaining such sample. 
I need to exhume him. For real. Or find his son. He's got to have some family somewhere. exactly. Familial DNA. Yes. In 2001, the combined efforts of the Ohio County Sheriff and the West Virginia State Police brought forth a DNA sample that had been extracted from evidence obtained at the crime scene. It's believed that this sample contains DNA of Sister Robin's killer. The sample was input into CODIS and has since allowed authorities to eliminate 23 suspects that have been looked at over the years. Though the sample is still being used to eliminate suspects, a match has not yet been made to this date in 2023. Sister Robin was laid to rest at the Mount Calvary Cemetery on June 15, 1977. Her funeral, which was amassed by over 200 mourners, included high-ranking members of the Catholic Church, including the Bishop of the Catholic Diocese. She's buried among her fellow sisters in the Sisters of St. Joseph section of the cemetery. I'm going to go ahead and open this up for commentary. This is the part of the podcast where we dive deeper into the murder, discussing theories, and volleying around ideas. Ladies, you ready? So where did they get the blood at on her? From her killer? Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. It just said that they were able to obtain a blood sample. He probably, like, nicked himself. And he had sex with her. Blood Did they find sperm? I, I don't know. Diving into the anatomy of this crime, let's first start with location, location, location. What does the topography of the area and the crime scene tell us about this murder? You would have known the area, known that spot. Know that nobody can see it from any angle. I feel like even if you weren't from there, you would have had to have scoped it out. Or had stalked the area previously. Even if Roberta wasn't the target, it could have just been any nun. Well, apparently a lot of them would go up there. Mm -hmm. So maybe he had been seeing. I feel like they had been watching. Yeah. Scoping it out. Knew that nuns went and prayed there. Especially if they didn't like Catholics. Catholics, yeah. And would cut his grandmother's finger off for a ring. Oh, my gosh. What do you believe the motive of the crime to be? Hatred. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you believe it? Even though it was a sexual crime, do you think that there was the sexual component to it? Or do you think it was just a, like, literal, fuck you? I think it was a fuck you and um, just an extra, extra little touch there. I agree with that. It's just, I'm thinking this is going to be like a sociopath. It's somebody who's messed up in the head. And I don't think it was all about the sex. I think it was just about what she was and the opportunity to do it where nobody could see it and... Well, I'll just rape her while I'm at it. Right. Well, he didn't hate him too much to rape her. Let's dive deeper into the victimology of Roberta Elam. Would you consider her to be a low or high risk victim? What can we infer from her victimology? I feel like she'd be low risk. Yes. Absolutely. Very low. Very low. Yeah. Low risk. I wonder if he would have been the person that she said unpleasant things to. He was considered as a suspect that salvage crew were considered, but they were cleared, I believe. Well, he was too, wasn't he? Who? Shoplack? Yeah. He, oh, he wasn't part of that crew. Oh. But no, he was cleared because of that flawed blood typing. Yeah. There's a lot of things that are flawed from old. Really? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Because like for military records, we have to have their DD-214s. You wouldn't believe how many people's DD-214s have wrong social security numbers, wrong. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. They need to get their stuff together. Yeah. They were yeah. probably write, writing it down at that time. Mm-hmm. Handwritten. Typewriter. Oh, 
So let's jump to the opposite end of the spectrum. What can we infer from the offender's suspectology? Would you consider him an organized or a disorganized offender? Um, I would say organized, and he's just used to doing it. Like, I feel like he just talked about it like it was just like an everyday thing. I kind of agree with that in the sense that he didn't really leave anything behind that would identify him. He's got to have some smarts about him to not leave anything behind. But, of course, it being 1977, there wasn't a whole lot of things you could figure out. But he said he strangled her with a belt. Yeah. But then he had a handprint on there. Yeah. So maybe, maybe he was, like, grabbing her with the belt. And the other hand, pull it in the belt. Ugh, that sounds scary. We discussed multiple persons of interest in this case. Do you believe anyone specific has the means and opportunity to commit the crime? Can we deduce the likelihood of involvement from these candidates from possible to probable? I would say the opportunity just arose. Like, I don't think that if it was that shop black or whatever, that he woke up and was like, oh, I'm going to go kill a nun today. I feel like that maybe he's just in the area. Or maybe he did. Maybe he was like, I'm going to go kill a nun today. I'm going to go kill a nun today. <laughs> and I might rape her while I'm there. I think that that. I think that just happened. That was just an extra. Yeah. That was like, yeah, watch yeah. this. Um, and means would be like the hatred, right? If it was him. Well, look, Shop Black has the means. Means is basically like, do you have it in you to do it? Yeah. Well, we can tell from everything he else cut he's off done. somebody's finger. Yeah. Like, I just feel like the other ones are just irrelevant. The I agree. The crew and. Yeah, I agree. I don't think anybody else can be considered besides him. I really do. They need to find his family and get his DNA. Mm -hmm. The last question I'm going to pose is perhaps the most controversial. But for the sake of conversation, I'm just going to go there. Did either of you consider the possibility of Roberta's offender being a man of the cloth or, in blatant terms, a priest? The Catholic Church and even the diocese have come under some scrutiny over the years regarding sexual abuse within the church. That honestly never crossed my mind. Didn't cross my mind until just now. But now, I... Hmm. I mean, I, I feel like if she was just raped, maybe, but being murdered... Maybe she knew something. Did y'all ever watch that documentary on the nun? The Keepers yeah, on the Netflix? Keepers, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Wow. That's a big thing to open up and It is. And, and you have discuss. to be careful about what you say. I just thought that that was, that was a point that actually one of the sisters raised um, when I was doing research for this. And she was like, you know, the scariest thing to us was, could it have been a priest? Because not a, that, it's private property. Nobody goes onto that property. Right. You can't get onto that property. It's just so sad that we have to consider that. It is. It's, it is. It's like tragic. Any, anywhere, not just for Catholics, for any, any anything. Yeah, not just because churches just. Yeah, I will say that growing up, my church was amazing, and I spent so much time in my fellowship group and confirmation group. And as a child, if something like that would have ever happened, oh my god, like that's your safe space. Like that was my safe place. Yeah, I just can't imagine something like that happening. I wonder if they talked to any of the priests. I'm not sure. See, they have been very quiet about a lot well, of things sure. with this investigation yeah. over the years. In fact, in the DNA of murder episode that Paul Holes put out on the case, they say that we get multiple Freedom of Information Act requests a year, like a lot. And they say we deny all of them because it is still an active investigation. Mm -hmm. We are still actively working it. And the fact that we get these requests just proves to us that people still care and haven't forgotten. Yeah. So they have kept a lot of stuff just to themselves. And rightfully so. Good for them. I think that that's how you should handle an investigation. Well, and I do too. We've seen what good it's done for other cases, like Delphi. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. They didn't release anything. And look, it's been very good for them Mm -hmm. to not do that. Well, even Um, Idaho. I mean, stuff has been released recently regarding Idaho, but... Not until they... Not until they... They arrested him. And they have a very good... Good case, case, yes. Yes. So Innocent until proven guilty. Yes. But we now know the reason that law enforcement does not share anything. They keep it close to the vest, and there's a reason for that. So hopefully they're able to do that for Roberta. Even though it's delayed justice, it's justice none the same. Justice for Sister Robin. Justice for Sister Robin. Hashtag justice for Sister Robin. It will be 46 years this June since the senseless slaying of Roberta Elam. She would have been 73 years old this year. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding the murder of Sister Robin, please contact the Willing Detachment of the West Virginia State Police at 304-238-1100. You are not required to give your name and are able to submit a tip anonymously. Join us next time when we discuss the brutal slaying of Irene Wilson from Calhoun County, a cold case from 1963. Do you have a case that you are interested in having us cover? Send us an email at coldcasecrew00 at gmail.com and let us know who you would like to hear about next. What's your theory?